Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's keep an eye on the market here. As John was just reporting, kind of a, a red day on the screen here, the S&P off 1%. And to me, the question is, where do you go here if this Fed is going to keep it higher for longer. Let's check in with our next guest. He's probably got a, an informed opinion. David Dietz, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management. David, thanks for joining us again here. I'm a little concerned here that at the very least, this stock market is range bound until we get a better sense of what this Federal Reserve is going to do here. Well, it could be worse than uh, range bound, as we saw in September, where it was the worst month of the year for many sectors of the market, including the S&P 500. If this 10-year Treasury yield keeps rising, um, that just puts pressure on all assets, whether that be real estate, whether that be uh, stocks, whether that be tech stocks or utility stocks and so forth, because it reduces that present value. The question is, what is ultimately going to break the rise in this interest rates? And we're, we're just not sure, but we're obviously we're looking at inflation. We're looking at the Federal Reserve. We're looking at the amount of debt being issued by our federal government. We're wondering what um, central banks overseas are doing with their uh, catch of uh, U.S. Treasury securities, that's all in the mix. And looking at some of these long-term yields here, uh, I mean, the 30-year just on an absolute tear today. Uh, anything really that's like, you know, standing out to you in that part of the curve right now? Well, certainly uncertainty. We just got a piece of information today, the so-called JOLT survey, which showed there were more job openings than were expected. And that's really anathema to bond prices and it's going to create higher yields because uh, one of the concerns of the bond market is if this economy stays strong, and the, one of the most important parts of it is labor, then there's going to be more demand for borrowing. There's going to be more inflation. There's going to be an increasingly hawkish Fed. So that has helped uh, push yields up again today. And of course, we're seeing the fallout in the market. You know, I was taking a look into the JOLTS report a little bit further here, and I'm not sure how much of it you've seen, but um, you know, most of this rise in job openings came pretty much exclusively from professional and business services and finance and insurance jobs. Like that was like pretty the more or less the bulk of the jump in openings here. How much do you think the Fed reads into something like that? And of course, you know, there is the bigger picture. The labor market is still very strong. There still are a lot of job openings, but just looking at this one report here, seeing as it was so concentrated. 
Yeah, so absolutely. Well, you know, I do think that these are the types of jobs that pay a little bit better as opposed to the service sector. So there's a couple of things you could read into it. One is that this initial surge in service sector jobs post pandemic is starting to ease. Maybe that's reflective of uh, middle and lower income Americans having to pull in their belts just a little bit as uh, interest rates go up and inflation bites. Um, and of course, the other thing, if these higher paying jobs are the ones that are still most in demand, those ultimately pay a little bit more and that could exacerbate inflation. So you could make the case that this is not the best mix from the point of view of the Federal Reserve. Valuation, David, you know, I, I guess there's a couple ways to look at valuation here. A, the market's pretty pricey given where rates are, but if you back out the Magnificent Seven, maybe it's not as bad. How do, how do you think about valuation as we gear up for another round of earnings? Yeah, absolutely. It is a tale of two markets and so many different metrics. And and Paul, you're right to, to focus on valuation because now after the September and indeed the last two months of Q3, plus of course, Monday's mixed outing, um, if you strip out that magnificent magnificent seven, you've got a PE on the market that's only 15. You know, that's actually below what the average has been over the last decade. But you are also right to point to, you know, you need to always compare these things versus the yields available on uh, benchmark treasuries, of course. And, you know, so people are going to say, well, gee, if I can get 4.7% risk-free from a treasury, admittedly with no growth of that income, uh, that looks pretty good, even relative relative to a, a 15 PE on the market, particularly given the risk of recession and increasingly hawkish Fed. So um, valuations look better. That's reasons for optimism, but we're still looking over our shoulder at the bond market. You know, David, I'm an economy person, and I was personally banking on this week being fairly quiet, um, expecting there to be no jolts report, no jobs report, but um, no such thing. Um, you know, we got a deal, and uh, the government is, uh, the lights are on for now. So looking ahead a little bit to Friday, uh, what are you thinking ahead of the jobs report? Well, so it seems like the consensus on Wall Street is maybe some job creation, maybe 100,000. And so we're going to be determining whether, you know, the actual jobs created are less or more. Unfortunately, we're in this situation here, Molly, where good news is taken as bad news because, you know, a better economy means potentially higher yields, which is going to cause people to rotate out of stocks into these bonds. And so I think from Wall Street's perspective, you may want something under 100. Certainly, if you're a bond investor, you want something well less than 100. And that could help us get you know, our feet back on the ground and, of course, give some pause to the Fed, who keeps talking about higher for longer. Um, if, those job, if that job creation comes in softer, that's something to watch. Of course, two other things to watch. One is, you know, the, the weekly pay, is that showing inflationary trends or backing off a little bit? And of course, do they uh, change the numbers for past months? If they revise them down, that could be a positive. The so-called bad news is good news for stocks or it could go the other way. Corporate earnings start up in uh, you know a week to ten days here yet again. What are you looking for in this earnings? Have we seen the worst of this earnings cycle, or do we still have some more pain to go here in, the, in Q3? Well, you know we are going to see some pain because the latest fact set. Um, pronouncements show that on average we should just be a little bit below the flat line, which is going to reflect the uh, third or fourth quarter in a row of negative year-over-year -year earnings. Well, you know, you buy stocks for earnings. If they're not making more money than, than they were the prior year, well, what's the point? Well, the point's going to be that uh, 
forecasters are looking for a close to 12% jump in earnings in 2024, and you buy a stock not for the past quarter's earnings, but for the upcoming earnings. So, you know, all eyes are really going to be focused, not necessarily on what they report, but what they say about conditions going forward. If they're upbeat and constructive, that's the reason to jump back in. If not, uh, people may want to hold their power, and that could be uh, uh, a more slogging that we're going to have to do in the market here. Tell us where you're at, uh, David, for um, you know looking into the November FOMC at this point and um, expectations for the rest of the year as well. So I think it's a coin toss right now as to whether there's going to be another hike in November. Uh, counseling for it is they don't want to have to say they're done, have assets take off and create another inflationary problem. They want They don't want to say that they're done and then have to come back in again. Um, but on the other hand, you know, these interest rate hikes act with a long and variable lag. You know, I'm still looking at this residential real estate market where mortgage rates have more than doubled. You know, all things being equal, that means carrying costs have doubled. How can residential real estate prices stay where they are? And that's consumers' biggest asset. So I think that there's a lot of reasons for caution on the part of the Federal Reserve. And so my best guess is they sit tight, but they say they're going to stay vigilant. But we all see. All right, David, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts. David Dietz, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist at PPEC, Private Wealth Management. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to our next guest because I'm looking at this market, and we had the job market, the job openings, the jolts thing, Majiggy, that came in really strong, higher than any forecast out there. So, of course, the market says, well, the Fed's not going to be cutting rates anytime soon, and maybe even raise rates. Uh, so let's check in with Megan Horneman. Uh, she's the chief investment officer at Verdance. Megan, what do you make of the, the the jolts data we saw this morning, and, and the market's reaction to it? So yeah, it is one month. Um, we have to remember that it, it has been consistently coming down. It was surprising to us. I mean, it was very concentrated in some of the white collar jobs and finance business, education. Um, it's going to be more important on how that translates into Friday's number if it does at all. Um, the one thing we took out of that report is the quits rate. Um, so those are, that's the amount of people that are voluntarily leaving their job. And that still is very low. So that shows that there isn't a ton of confidence um, in the future of the the labor market. People are holding on to their current jobs. Let's just see what happens on Friday. Um, we've already been in the camp that there's more of a chance the Fed will have to raise rates at least one more time this year, whether it's November or December, really will depend on the data that's coming in. Um, right now, we do see you know the labor market in its entirety is, is still relatively strong. So the Fed can't necessarily pull back what they're doing. The other thing that has concerned us has been the fact that oil prices are back on the rise. So that's going to cause some volatility in the inflation data and make the job for the Fed even more more difficult. You, know, you also mentioned um, in the Jolts report, uh, there's an uh, layoffs also stayed low in addition to quits and looking ahead then to Friday with the jobs report. Um, I mean, where do you where do you see the weakness coming from? Uh, it looks like, you know, people have been calling for the hiring to be slowing and it is slowing. But I don't know, some of these estimates in here for like 100,000 down from 187, that would be a huge drop off. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, as far as weakness in the labor market, let's remember that the labor market is a lagging indicator. So a lot of people put so much you know, kind of credence into every month's jobs report and the fact that it's strong and the Fed's going to have to do so much more. Let's just remember it's a lagging indicator. It is what's kept the economy afloat for the this entire year. But going forward, there are some cracks that are starting to emerge. And um, when you look at some of the underlying indicators and some of the indexes in manufacturing or even the service side, this is showing weakness. Um, we know that from the construction side, there's weakness there with the housing market um, being in such disarray. So I don't necessarily think that, you know, from the, the weakness in the labor market will continue to materialize. It's just not going to materialize immediately. Also, we do, in in reality, have a structural issue with labor market right now. We have some demographics that are concerning. But I do think if you look over a long period of time, so I'm not talking about this month or next month, there are other things that we have to remember, like AI. This will come in and also help um, with the, some of the structural issues in the labor market. I just think it's going to make the Fed's job very difficult, and they're going to have to tread very lightly with this. Unfortunately, it looks like they're going to push the economy into a recession. Um, a needed recession. There are some excesses that need to be cleared out. But unfortunately, with the amount of tightening that they're doing and that they need to do, it's likely pushing the economy into recession. Oh, boy. All right. So I had taken recession off the table, table Megan, three months ago. So uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. But I trust your opinion a lot more than mine. Um, looking at the S&P 500, Megan, uh, you know, we're still up 10 percent for the year, but, you know, down 8 percent or so from that, I guess, that high back in uh, July or so. Has a market adequately priced in higher for longer, or do we have more to go, or are we going to tread water? How, how do you kind of view the next three to six months? Um, I, I still don't think it's completely over. Um, I think a, a lot of it has been done, the damage. And we've seen this has been a pretty rapid move. I just don't think from a valuation perspective, there's two things. I think PE multiples still are a little too high, given the higher for longer. And I also don't think, I, I know you mentioned you took recession off the table three months ago. We've kind of always been in the camp that there'd be a recession, but now there's more people coming back into the camp that unfortunately this will end in, in a recession, whether it's a short and shallow recession, but some sort of a recession. Um, the, the earnings expectations for next year aren't really reflecting that yet. So I'm afraid that we're going to see earnings expectations come down lower for next year. So that could put some more downward pressure on the market. There's still so much division within the Fed right now of where do we go from here. And, um, you know, I want to ask and Megan, maybe you've got a better idea then than they do right now of uh, what uh, the data is telling you in terms of uh, the direction of rates right now. You think another hike may be possible this year? Yeah, and I, I won't say I'm smarter than anybody at the Fed, but um, I will say that I think um, it is good to have some of the division there in, in the committee because we are walking such a fine line. Inflation is extraordinarily easy to reignite, especially if you start to give the signs that, hey, we are done, rate cuts are done, or rate hikes, sorry, rate hikes are done, um, because then eventually people are going to be looking for that rate cut. What my concern is that that rate cut isn't going to happen anymore anytime soon because in, they're walking such a fine line with inflation. With the PCE core, we did just get below 4% on a year-over-year -year basis. That's good. Inflation is going in the right direction. But there are some other factors that we're concerned will just cause a lot of volatility in inflation and make us getting from that 4 or 5% inflation down to 2% much more difficult. WTI crude oil, back around $90 a barrel. 
is there still an energy trade here for investors or has that kind of played out? Um, I think if you're just looking at from a return perspective, it, it is, look, a lot of it has been priced into the market. Um, we think it's definitely a, an issue from the inflation standpoint, but it's also something that can can really hurt the consumer. Sometimes the, the cure for high prices is high prices, and energy is one of those things. If this causes demand to pull back substantially for the economy to fall into recession, you know, commodities, including oil, they're not, they can't escape that weakness when we do fall into to an economic contraction. All right, Megan, thank you so much for joining us again. Always appreciate getting your thoughts. Megan Horneman, Chief Investment Officer at Verdance. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Josh Joseph, CEO of Big Plan Holdings. He joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Josh, thanks so much for joining us here. What is Big Plan Holdings and how did you get here? Yeah, th thank you for having me. Uh, Big Plan Holdings is a diversified family office that my wife and daughters run out of Nashville, Tennessee at this point, focused in uh, cannabis, real estate, uh, hospitality, fashion, professional sports, music, and entertainment. And you funded this family office with the sale of your... Cannabis company. Cannabis yeah, company. out of Chicago. Yeah, we founded a company in Chicago, in the Chicagoland area um, back in 2014-15 and uh, grew that to the largest privately held cannabis company in the U.S. upon an exit in July of 2020. And who did you sell to? Cureleaf acquired Cureleaf. us. Yeah. That's a, a public traded yeah, pub Canadian Yeah, company. public Canadian company. Nice. Yeah, you can only, only be public right now in Canada. Um, in, the, in the cannabis story. space. That's yeah. a good American story. Right yeah. So what's the, steely, the story with um, the legality of cannabis in Tennessee right now? Uh, not much of one. Yeah. <laughs> not, not much of <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, not much of one. Yeah, Tennessee is uh, going to be one of the uh, the last remaining states to fall, is is my guess at this point. So, Why is that? Know, 
you know, Tennessee um, fiscally is a very strong state. So, you know, more often than not, the states will jump in because of, you know, needing some additional money to come in and, you know, right size budgets, et cetera. Um, Tennessee's fiscally strong. Um, I think politics also, of course, plays a role in that as well. And uh, I, I think that they'll be one of the last states to fall. So when you say fiscally strong, a.k.a. they don't have much of a financial incentive here. Correct. Okay. Correct. So where, where are we on the national legislation for cannabis? Because it feels like that domino has to fall before banking can have I, you know it just seems like that has to happen at some point yeah a lot of a lot of people think that federal legalization is the key um i actually don't okay i think a lot of us who've been in the business you know i've been in it since 2014 which is uh you know about 50 years in any <laughs> other industry um i think federal legalization really is we're fine keeping it uh, at the state level in this industry but what, how about like banking what, yeah what we need to happen what we need to have happen are two or three things or three or four things really um, recently the Department of Health and Human Services just about two weeks ago uh, made a recommendation to reschedule cannabis uh, to a schedule three drug from a schedule one that would allow um, a couple things a couple dominoes to fall into place that would allow hopefully what will be safe banking okay. to be passed um, on Capitol Hill uh, which has already passed through the House seven times uh, <laughs> and has failed in the Senate each time. So we're hoping that uh, with this most recent um, subcommittee, bipartisan subcommittee legislation from a week or two ago that came through, that hopefully we'll get that passed. Um, there's something in the IRS tax code 280E uh, that we are not allowed to use in cannabis. Um, we are very, very hopeful that we will be allowed to use uh, 280E and exercise that um, to allow for the appropriate deductions to be taken, uh, which will almost automatically allow for all the big MSOs and larger operators to be profitable right away, almost overnight. And then being uplisted uh, and being allowed to be listed on the NASDAQ uh, would be absolutely tremendous. So right now you can only be listed in Canada. Yep. So that's why federal legalization, really it doesn't matter if that makes sense all yep. that much. It looks like this bill that's, um, go, that just went through the Senate Banking Committee um, seems pretty serious. I, this is kind of crazy to me. I had no idea that cannabis-related companies right now are forced to operate using only cash. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's that sounds a, so archaic. It's huh. really, really antiquated. Wow. Yeah, really antiquated. Um, it's, it's a real challenge in the industry. Uh, for, you know, as you scale your business, uh, it's a tremendous, tremendous challenge. Uh, as a consumer or a patient or a consumer, it's a challenge. And so this would allow really, you know, for the big banks, the, the FDIC insured banks to be able to take our money and also provide loans to us. Because as of now, to scale your business in the cannabis industry, it's really all cash. You can't, uh, you can't provide any, no, no one can provide you any leverage in the public markets. So you're getting leverage from private investors like ourselves, you know, we'll, We'll, we'll lend to certain cannabis operators, et cetera, but they don't come, they don't come cheap. Yep. All right. So we have legal cannabis here in New York, but if you, I'm sure you've walked down the streets of New York City. Yeah. Um, there's these cheesy weed shops, two or three to every block. Yeah. What did the city do so get so incredibly wrong here? Yeah, the, the state. So, the it, state. so it sits, yeah, it sits at the state level. And um, in my opinion, it sits at the state right. level. State, state will, you know, enact legislation. They'll adopt uh, rules and regs, as we call them. And, uh, you know, and then New York, like so many other states, unfortunately, will roll out a program and they're just not ready for it. And time and time again, we've seen this over the last decade when states roll them out, especially in limited license states. There's rightfully, there's been a real big push for DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, social equity, um, participation in the cannabis industry. 
And there are just not the appropriate tools for a lot of these states when they roll out programs to allow for the influx of interest that they're getting, uh, that these cannabis commissions are getting. And so New York is one of many, many states. Really? Yeah. Can you can you put the genie back in the bottle here? It's tough. It's yeah. hard. Yeah, it's hard. You know, they're going to try. They're trying right now. But it's it's a challenge. Because you're supposed to have approved, state-approved dispensaries, which we right. have a couple or three here in the city. Matt Miller would know the details better than me. But then we have the unlicensed ones. Right. And I guess the law enforcement just has chosen not to enforce. Yeah, that's that's what they've chosen to do. Okay. You know, at this point, you know, there there are bigger fish to fry yep. from from a law enforcement standpoint, and so it is tough to put the genie back in the bottle. To to your question, is that a problem in other states too, or is it just us city folks complaining here? <laughs> no, I I, I think <laughs> it, it is. I, I think New York though um, has really. Has, has a real issue. Extra, yeah, we've done an extra <laughs> yeah, good job. At yeah, yeah. It I think I think you have a real issue coming from Illinois, coming from the Chicagoland area. I will say, as um, as screwed up as our state, my home, my former home state of Illinois is in many respects. Illinois cannabis program. We were, we were the 11th state back in 2014. They actually did a really nice job crafting a program that uh, did not provide for what is happening here in New York. What are the economics for a state for the cannabis business? Does it what what are the what are the revenue arguments that are being made have been made and are they coming to fruition? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Illinois recently, uh, you know, had more in sales tax revenue as an example um, in cannabis sales than alcohol sales. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, you're going to continue to see that trend around the country, is my guess. Uh, so you know, when these states are putting together annual budgets, uh, you know this cannabis tax that's coming in is, is rather significant. Um, you know, I can talk to you know, about Illinois just for a second, just yeah. because that was where I started. And you know, if you're a medical patient, you're gonna pay about three or 4%, I wanna say. If you're an adult use mm -hmm. uh, customer, you're gonna pay somewhere between 30 and 40% uh, of tax. Okay. Based upon, you know, so figure you're, you're at a 35% average tax. Um, so yeah, it adds up, you know, uh, pretty significantly. And when we're looking at, uh, you know, next states that could legalize weed, uh, carrot, cannabis, weed, cannabis, whatever you cannabis, want to call it. Yes. Cannabis is the proper word here. <laughs> Can we not say weed? Is yeah, that no, you can say weed, of course. That's, okay. that's ETF. Oh, right. Yes, that's excuse ETF. me. Right. One of our new favorite tickers. Um, but when we're looking at legalization for future states, I mean, is it really a political argument? Is it a fiscal one? Like, what, what are the big talking points here yeah what happens is every st every state will always roll out a medical program first every single one they will typically let that go for a year two years uh, they'll see how it goes they will notice that there is not an uptick in criminal activity they will notice that there is not an uptick in DUIs and all of that kind of stuff that folks get scared of that officials get scared of um, then they start talking about adult use you know recreational use and so it takes a it takes a couple of minutes for a state to come around, and you know, and then once they do, it then takes a little bit more time for them to enact adult use legislation. We're seeing it move a little bit quicker now, just because we have so many states that have opted into medical programs. I think we're up to thirty seven. I want to say states plus four territories that uh, I could be off by one or two, but mm -hmm. around that number that have me at least medical programs, and then when you break that down, you're having the low twenties on adult use. Hey, Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming in here. Josh Joseph, CEO of Big Plan Holdings, talking about uh, the cannabis business, making a lot of movement here uh, on the state level. You're listening to The Team.
Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Natalie Trevithick joins us. She's head of investment grade credit strategy at Payton and Regal. What should I do with on the credit side? Because for the first time in like forever, I can get yield here. Um, yields at 6.15% are pretty attractive, but these days it always seems like the best day to buy bonds is tomorrow. So uh, it seems to be uh, going higher and higher. We think we are near the top and you kind of can lock in rates today at these higher levels. You mentioned the two year at five and a little bit is nice, but we are seeing investors want to go further out the curve, even if it means taking a lower yield. You can still get close to those 6% on 10 year corporates and we find that pretty compelling. Natalie Tre Trevithick joins us. She's head of investment grade credit strategy at Payton and Regal. Thanks, Natalie, for joining us. And yeah, you know, Paul was right. I, I am a bit of a credit person, at least in a former life here. And, it, you know, I'm looking at investment grade bond yields right now, and spreads are still pretty tight, all things considered. There was There is a little bit of widening here, but I guess like the question for you right now is probably, what, like there probably is no need to take any credit risk, right? Like, you know, duration is just like doing all the work for you. Duration is doing the bulk of the work, but getting that extra 125 basis points by going into IG credit still seems to make sense. Um, there has been this tug of war between credit looking rich on a spread basis, but attractive on a yield basis. And all factors are signaling that people are yield buyers and are really looking at these high yields that you can get in high yield a year or two ago and seeing it as a relatively safe haven place to park their money. Natalie, how do you guys think about it over there at Payton and Regal in terms of what this Federal Reserve is going to do here? Is there is there another one move higher or do you think they can stay here? We think there's one move higher. The issue which we think is going to propel that is just still strong employment. Um, consumers still have a lot of money. Maybe the savings rate is coming down, but their expenditures um, are still below what they're earning. So we still feel that the consumer has some strength behind them. Yeah, that's got to be a factor then concerning for the Fed here. And we obviously saw the jolts report this morning. Job openings not coming down. Um, you must be looking ahead then to Friday and um, the next catalyst then on the jobs report then for rates. Um, any expectations as we're looking into later this week? Yeah, we think as long as you get 100,000 of job growth uh, per month, that could keep us at an unemployment rate of 3.8%. So for the catalyst for the unemployment rate to move higher, which would really maybe give the Fed more reason to pause, we do just don't really see that in the cards in the near term. Natalie, in the credit space, are there certain industries that you guys feel more comfortable here or some industries that maybe uh, represent better value right here, given where we are in the economic cycle? Sure. From the credit perspective, we're actually liking the utility sector right now. We've seen valuations cheapen up there, and they tend to be higher quality bonds, which are also secured. So we're seeing better value in that sector today. We're also seeing value in some of the consumer sectors. Autos have also cheapened up a little because of the strike, and we don't think this is going to be a long-term burden on the uh, their ability to continue to earn uh, strong cash flows. So that's a sector we also like buying on this little bit of weakness. How about in terms of credit quality? You think this is a time to maybe be greedy, reach down a little bit, or no need? Um, well, we like investment-grade credit, but we are fine going down into the triple B space. A lot of the single-A names have had so much demand that they aren't offering you a big premium over treasuries. We also think there's some value in the high-yield market. We don't think there's going to be a big wave of defaults here. So uh, playing some of that crossover space is pretty attractive because then you get yields closer to 7%. 
How about in the, do you guys have much exposure to the mortgage-backed securities market? Because it just seems crazy with mortgage rates and what's going on in the housing market. I'm not sure if that's uh, where you guys play as well. Yeah, Payton as a firm has a lot of investments across MBS. It's not my area of expertise, though. Do you look at anything else in like the asset-backed space? I mean, I, I guess I would also maybe be a little concerned with like auto loans right now and just anything, as you're saying, you know, if consumer spending might be slowing here, just uh, looking at it from that macro perspective. Yeah, from the macro perspective, we do see a little bit of weakness, but the strength of some of these securities, particularly in the AAA buckets, it's still very strong. And we have seen valuations cheapen up here. So it's actually can be a bit of, a bit of an opportunity to buy in this weakness. Natalie, what, what do you see in the new issue market? I'd be, you know, I could, I wonder what the issuers are thinking about here with these rates continuing to move higher. What do you have, like, in your discussions with, with new issuers? Yeah, there's been a lot of issuance in September, but it underwhelmed relative to expectations. And what we're seeing is a little bit of a dichotomy between what buyers want to buy, which is 10 and 30 year bonds, and what issuers want to issue, which is really the front end of the curve. We're seeing a lot more two-year issuance this year than we have before, and deals are coming with a lot of two, three, five, sevens because they rather have these um, higher rates for a shorter period of time. And they also borrowed so much 30-year paper post-pandemic at virtually free rates, so they already have that part of their maturity wall very full. So we see them kind of topping up more the belly of the curve here. So what are your contacts on the sell side saying about this? Are the, are the issuers going to start giving you what you want? No, deals have been <laughs> coming at very tight levels, very aggressive, typically, you know, pricing 25 basis points tighter than their initial price talk. Um, and dealers uh, and investors aren't dropping from these deals. So the demand just is outweighing the supply right now. So we think it's a little bit more of a seller's market. And also, you have to think that uh, these companies aren't refinancing their entire debt stack at these higher yields of 6%. They've been able to borrow very cheaply for many years, so they aren't going to stop borrowing just because uh, interest rates have gone up. They want to maintain their access to the capital markets. All right, Natalie, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. As always, Natalie Trevithick, Head of Investment Grade Credit Strategy uh, at Payton and Regal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.